364 days ago, July 5th, 2020, a statue of Frederick Douglass in Rochester, New York, that had been installed in 2018 on the 200th anniversary of his birth, was ripped from its pedestal. On the 168th anniversary of his presentation of the speech you heard an excerpt from in the readings. What to the slave is the 4th of July? The statue was found about 50 feet from its base in Maplewood Park, leaning against a fence too damaged to be repaired. Why did this happen? Some think it was a response to the removal of statues of Confederate generals that was occurring around that time, though those who carried out this act were never found, so the particular motives must remain a mystery. Whatever their intent may have been, this incident is certainly symbolic of what one um, article writer called the history wars that are occurring in our national conversation. Who have we counted as heroes? Who have we forgotten? And most importantly, in the title of the second selection in our readings, whose story is this? When we say history, American history, whose story are we telling? Howard Zinn raised this question, challenging the notion that history was only about leaders and people in positions of power and, the, and what he called the fundamentalist nationalist glorification of country. And instead, he published a landmark volume entitled The People's History of the United States, focusing on the grassroots struggles for justice, equity, and human rights. In 2019, the New York Times Magazine published the 1619 Project, which, quote, aims to reframe the country's history by placing the consequences of slavery and the contributions of black Americans at the very center of the United States national narrative, unquote. The Trump administration responded with something called the 1776 Commission, stating in an executive order on November 2nd, 2020, that, quote, the recent attacks on our founding have highlighted America's history related to race. These one-sided and divisive accounts too often ignore or failed to properly honor and recollect the great legacy of the American national experience, our country's valiant and successful effort to shake off the curse of slavery and to use the lessons of that struggle to guide our work toward equal rights for all citizens in the present." Unquote. And though history may seem like a dry and unlikely focus for such passionate battles, the controversies, of course, are not just about what happened in the past. They are not only about who we were, but who we are and who we are becoming. 
and they are about who we are talking about when we talk about we. Who is included? Who is excluded? Whose story is this? Rick Santorum, you may have heard in a speech back in April at the Young America Foundation Summit, said, we came here and created a blank slate. We birthed a nation from nothing. I mean, there was nothing here. I mean, yes, we have Native Americans, but candidly, that there isn't much Native American culture in American culture. It was born of the people who came here pursuing religious liberty to practice their faith. Unquote. This is his story, not to be confused with history. He had a relatively short time to share some of his understanding about the history of this country, and this is what he said. A blank slate, this land. We birthed a nation from nothing. Whose story is this? Who is included? Who is excluded? And who are we? We came here. We birthed a nation from nothing. And hard as this is to admit, I recognize this story, distorted as it may be, as precisely one of the stories I was taught as a child. This was what passed for history. And to hear the real history of how the people who lived on this land, who occupied this blank slate, to hear how these people were killed, brutalized, subjugated, and systematically disenfranchised is an unwelcome and uncomfortable interruption of what Howard Zinn called the fundamentalist nationalist glorification of country. It disrupts my picture not only of who we were, but of who we are and who we are in the process of becoming as I trace justifications of unjustifiable actions up to the present day. And as I begin to see the ongoing maintenance of systems that supported morally unsupportable actions still working efficiently at their original purpose. At the very least, it tempers the full-throated, unambiguous celebration of what we sometimes call Independence Day, the 4th of July. But how can we not hear the words that June read of Frederick Douglass from 159 years ago asking us whose 4th of July this is? Not only then, but now. Who is included? Who is excluded? There is a deep fear among many white people that if we journey open-eyed and open-hearted into our history, we will be left only with criticism, self-loathing, and guilt. There is a deep fear that if we let go of what the 1776 Commission calls our common story, no matter its distortions, we will lose not only our country, but our own individual and communal sense of identity. 
I mean, you can look locally. The board president of the Paso Robles School Board brought forth a resolution just last month to ban the teaching of critical race theory after receiving many emails from concerned parents, though there was no indication that it had ever been taught, nor were there any plans to do so in those schools. And amid great confusion and a massive amount of misinformation about exactly what critical race theory is. An accurate definition seemed almost beside the point. The problem, I would suggest, is that it is seen as a challenge, which it is, to the idea of a common story. And before I go any further with examples, let me say I understand something about why these people are afraid. I want to love my country. I want to be proud of my country. I don't relish experiencing one loss of innocence after another, one rude awakening after another, one more growth experience after another, but all of that only shows how isolated and insulated I have been, sunk into the cushion of obliviousness that power bestows, as Rebecca Solnit said. It shows how tempting it is to accept the common story for those who belong. But how much richer and truer my understanding of my country and myself can become if I risk relationship, if I risk listening, if I risk learning, if I risk honest investigation into what was, what is, and what is possible. We have work to do, and thankfully it is being engaged within Unitarian Universalism. We have to risk facing our own history and not only championing the reliable hero, heroes who happen to speak to our current image of ourselves. Frederick Douglass, in that same speech, bemoaned the fact that many churches sided with the slaveholders, saying, many of its most eloquent divines who, have, who stand as the very lights of the church have shamelessly given the sanction of religion and the Bible to the whole slave system. Christopher Cameron, in a book entitled Black Freethinkers, A History of African-American Secularism, points out that these eloquent divines included ministers such as the Northern Unitarians, Ezra Stiles Gannett, and Orville Dewey both of whom preached, for instance, that people should obey man's law before God's and not resist statutes such as the Fugitive Slaves Act. For both men, their views evolved over time, but we have to understand that when Douglas was giving his speech, that's what these Unitarian ministers were preaching. In our, we, Unitarian Universalists who covenant to pass along the light of this living tradition in our congregations. If we are to take credit for the work of a James Reeb 
in the civil rights movement, then we must also take responsibility for the preaching in favor of the Fugitive Slave Act of Ezra Stiles Gannett and Orville Dewey. I can be proud of and find great hope in this faith without closing my eyes to the realities of injustice, oppression, and hypocrisy in our history. In fact, that is the only way I can take pride and find hope in Unitarian Universalism. Otherwise, I am simply loving an illusion, refusing to be corrected by truth as I find it or as it is presented to me. And then, what hope is there? But that is easier said than done, right? I want to love my country. I do. Yet the more I learn. I come to realize that before I use words like justice, I need to remember in the words of Martin Luther King Jr. that injustice anywhere is a threat to justice everywhere. Before I talk about equality, I must acknowledge that in this society, as in George Orwell's Animal Farm, some are more equal than others. And that is just as antithetical to equality as it sounds. Before I sing about freedom, I must face up to the fact that freedom has not been granted, but fought for, wrestled from the powers that be at any given time, that liberation is costly, as Desmond Tutu says, and that its promise has still not been recognized under this regime of mass incarceration, the new Jim Crow, and on the southern border, and among the most vulnerable in this society. What does it actually mean anymore for me to say, I love my country? When Hanji and I were in Minnesota, we went with a friend to George Floyd Square. We wanted to go and we were also hesitant. Though we both have roots in Minnesota, it felt just a little touristy, and we didn't want to in any way disrespect the power and profundity of that place. There was a small group of people near the barricade that served as entrance, people who were apparently there on a regular basis. They welcomed us with some smiles and some nodding heads, and all of my hesitation vanished with that welcome. The message I received was, we are glad you are here. Take some time. Take it in. It was easy and friendly and serious all at the same time. The messages in the murals and statues and graffiti the feel of standing in front of that field of tombstones with the names of people of color who had died at the hands of police, of simply looking up and seeing the cup food sign and thinking of how that had been broadcast around the world as people came together in common purpose to proclaim Black Lives Matter, to demand justice, to create a world that has not yet been, to say the name George Floyd, and the names of so many more. It was a place that held reverence 
and anger and passion and compassion and grief and grit and outrage and insight and despair and defiance and hope. And I thought to myself, this is the country I love. This is the country where my heart is. To say I love my country is not saying I've got a crush on the fundamentalist, nationalist glorification of country, but loving the people. My God, the people who are engaging the struggle for this nation to realize its professed aspirations. For America, as Langston Hughes said, to be America. These people who tend this place, George Floyd Square, this intersection in the middle of the country, this intersection where the harsh realities of white supremacy cross the way being made by the multi-age, multi-racial, multicultural movement for black lives and for a story of America that includes all of us. The vision of a world that has not yet been, but could be. If I say I love my country, it is to say that I love, in the words of poet Adrian Rich, those who, age after age, perversely, with no extraordinary power, reconstitute the world. It is through those people that I have even come to know my country and to give up this, you know, exclusionary illusion of a nation that has arrived at some pinnacle of exceptionalism. So what do I do with that recognition? In the words of Rebecca Solnit, as a person with some power in this society, I must first strive to extricate myself from the cushion of obliviousness that power generates. Being aware of how my status may cut me off from what others know, knowing that I do not know. Then I must try to undo the inequality, being critical of the forces that create inequality and remembering that they create asymmetries of audibility and impact. Some are more equal than others. Rebecca Solnit writes, the unexamined life is not worth living as the aphorism go, but perhaps an honorable and informed life requires examining others' lives, not just one's own. Perhaps we do not know ourselves unless we know others. And if we do, we know that nobody is nobody. This is a unique 4th of July. It is the very first 4th of July celebration to, to follow an official national celebration of Juneteenth. That is but a symbol, I know. It is not change in itself, but it is something. It is at the least a recognition that this celebration, as Frederick Douglass said so eloquently, was not a celebration for all. Nobody is nobody. History is whose story? Who is included? Might we imagine a history that includes us all?
May we imagine a future that does the same.